Canine Conservationists podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every other week to discuss ecology, odor dynamics, dog behavior, and everything in between. I'm your host, Kayla Fratt, and I run Canine Conservationists, where I train dogs to detect data. Today, I have the absolute joy of talking to Laura Holder about Conservation Dogs Collective. Welcome to the podcast, Laura. Thank you, Kayla. Thank you so much for having me on today. Yeah, I'm super excited to have you on. So just to let our our, our, guests, our listeners know a little bit more about you, um, Laura is the co-founder and exec- executive director of Conservation Dogs Collective Incorporated. Her lifelong fascination with canines, especially their unique ability to work alongside humans, inspires her every day in the field. She loves training and deploying the CDCI canine teams to support clients in their critical conservation efforts. Driven by her boundless curiosity about how dogs think, learn, and detect scent, Laura has spent more than a decade as a professional in the fields of scent detection, nose work, and dog training. She is a certified nose work instructor through the National Association of Canine Scent Work and a certified professional dog trainer knowledge accessed through the CCPDT. Laura has also trained for obedience and agility, and in addition to her involvement with Conservation Dogs Collective, Laura is also the owner of Connecting with Dogs, co-founder of the Force Free Trainers of Wisconsin, and has a long list of continuing education credits. Her two Labrador retrievers, Ernie and Betty White, are her current canine partners for conservation detection dog work, and she oversees the training for all the organization's finder-keeper teams. So um, again, Laura, welcome to the podcast. Why don't we just start out with you, um, you know, tell us the story of how you got involved in conservation detection dog work and how that kind of started for you. Absolutely. Like, as I was listening to you read my bio, I'm just like, so in a nutshell, I love dogs. Uh, (laughs) Basically. Yep. Um, So I, my, my story of how I got into conservation detection dog work um, kind of is somewhat unique, but also similar to many others who get into dog training in general. I had a problem child dog back in the day. Um, My white shepherd, Oscar, came into my life. I had a bunch of ambitions for him to be a therapy dog and it became quickly clear that he was not suited for that type of work and I got into the world of canine nose work at that point. Um, Mm -hmm. So that was my first intro into scent detection and that was about 10-11 years ago. Um, The conservation detection came into my life in 2016 when I received a phone call from the executive director excuse me, the executive director of uh, Mequon Nature Preserve, which is in the Mm -hmm. metro Milwaukee area. And she had seen the working dogs for conservation, um, you know, a a couple months prior at a conference, give a demo um, of emerald ash borer detection on some rubble piles of wood. And she came back very excited, like, oh my God, I've never heard of this before. I want to bring this method to the nature preserve. Um, and she got my name through the grapevine in the Milwaukee area. Cause at that time I was teaching canine nose work. Um, mm-hmm. so she reached out and was like, is this something that you can help us do? And I was like, absolutely I can. And admittedly at that point, mm-hmm. I had no idea that conservation detection was a thing. <laughs> you know, I, knew, <laughs> I think a lot of people have that response when they hear about it for the first time. They're like, say what now? Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> right. Like we all know about law enforcement and search and rescue and all that stuff. Um, so, you know, enter, uh, me saying yes, I was like, let's do it. Put together a proposal um, for Mequon Nature Preserve, including um, helping them locate a puppy to bring up in, in the world. Oh, that's very cool. So basically what you guys did was you helped them locate a, a puppy um, who's now working with them uh, long-term at, at that preserve kind of station there permanently? 
Yes, that's correct. Tilia's still <laughs> using her sniffer on the Mequon Nature Preserve property. Yep, alongside her two-legged co-worker. I almost said co-woofer, but I usually talk about it the other way. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so they're they're still working and doing their their great you know work to help nature and restore the property there. Very cool. Um, do you know what what sense Tilia and her uh, her coworkers are working on there? Yeah, Tilia. She started on the wild parsnip rosette. Um, that was mm-hmm. her first target odor when she turned about a year. She still works on that target odor. Um, they are also continuing to do their salamander um, reintroduction uh, onto mm-hmm. the property. So she's doing some work with two species of salamanders. Um, and she's also doing a little bit of work with garlic mustard, mustard, excuse me. Oh, very cool. Yeah. I know I've been sent a bunch of articles um, about her because as, as you know, and I know some of our listeners probably know I'm a Wisconsin native. So whenever stuff um, about Tilia and her work at Mequon comes up, I, everyone from home sends me a bunch of emails being like, have you heard of them? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's a very yeah. small world. I've definitely heard of them. Thank you for thinking of me. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. And so, and then for a while from there, you were running a business as Midwest Conservation Dogs, correct? Correct. Yeah, we founded ourselves as Midwest Conservation Dogs with the goal to stay within the kind of upper Midwest region. Um, a lot of that was just scheduling. You know, at that point, I was still working full time, well, sort of full time in corporate America. And um, we also wanted to serve the local community um, as much as we could. Mm hmm. Yeah. And it seems like you guys had enough success with that, that now, you know, obviously, as people are listening, you know, we didn't introduce you as Laura of Midwest Conservation Dogs. And um, so what kind of spurred this change over to Conservation Dogs Collective? And what what is different or expanded um, from that initial mission with Midwest Conservation Dogs? There are many answers to that question. It's a multi-layered <laughs> answer. Um, We've got time. Yeah, I'm like, oh, God. Um, the the main thing that we started to realize as an organization over the past couple of years was that while there is a ton of work to be done locally, we were connecting with people throughout the United States and also internationally. So um, part of the, the work demands and just the connections we were making started to go far beyond our immediate community. And um, instead of kind of turning those people away, you know, and like kind of closing those conversations down, we wanted to continue to welcome um, the education and development with our partners. Um, And another reason as well is, you know, as anybody listening to this podcast and far beyond, like people that love dogs, love dogs. So we wanted to reach a wider audience of Mm -hmm. just helping people understand that, you can use dogs to sniff out endangered species or invasive, you know, plants or whatever, and really connecting with the, you know, gazillions of people that share their life with dogs and love dogs as much as we do. Um, And also some of the partnerships that we develop during various programs, uh, you know, for, for instance, with the bumblebee nest work that we're doing, you know, we can talk, this is a whole nother podcast episode, but like trying to find (laughs) training material was an 18 month long process. And just, Oh my Lord. Some of the like, Oh, talk to this person who knows so-and-so. And And then, so you'd call that person and they're like, Oh, but I know these five people and you should call them. So like this, this just natural interconnectedness of Mm -hmm. the work we're doing, you know, just for the 
you know, the office side of things, but also the work we're doing with the dogs out in nature just started to become this larger, um, larger family. Right. So that was another key component to um, the name change and the rebranding, which is a lot different looking than it was as Midwest conservation dogs. Yeah, but it looks great. Like I, I don't know who you hired or who your designer is, or but it's it's beautiful. Really, really nice. Uh, nice website that we'll be sure to link to in the show notes, of course. Um, <laughs> Thank you. We hope so. people smile. I mean, really, we are a culture of joy, and like we love working with people, and we love working with our dogs. We love showing off our dogs, you know. So yeah. we wanted to communicate that through all of our all of our marketing material, you know. Yeah, yeah, I love that. And, and so at this point, it's you and Ernie and Betty White, and then several other finder keeper teams, which also I love that branding <laughs> whose idea was, you know, so the dogs are the finders and the people are the keepers, yeah, right? Or the keepers are the finders. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, that was the, um, it came out of a brainstorming session, Tracy mm-hmm. Schweder, who's our director of communications, she has such an amazing brain for, you know, really finding the essence of what why we're doing what we're doing you know and communicating that in a unique way but also very like understandable like oh my god yeah they are the finders right and then we're the know, keepers yeah, of well, these I mean, amazing <laughs> creatures so yeah yeah i i saw that um on your new website and was just just immediately like oh why didn't i think of that <laughs> like, i said that too when when tracy presented that i was like oh my god yes yeah <laughs> I not yeah mm-hmm yeah, yeah, because I, I I know um you know you have clearly thought of this. I know it seems like rogue detection teams thinks about this a lot. The the people in this field were more than handlers, mm-hmm. um, and that that word has never quite felt to me like it adequately describes what it is that I do. I'm not I'm not just a handler. I'm not just a trainer. Uh, you know that's the easiest way to describe what it is that we do. Um, in quick conversation, but so I I love that you guys thought of that. Yeah, absolutely. 100% agree with that. <laughs> yeah. We don't handle the dogs, you know? <laughs> no, no. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I help them sometimes, but mostly it's me just kind of keeping up and collecting samples. Right. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so I, I think one of the, well, the, the cool thing, you know, it, you guys, with your change from Midwest Conservation Dogs to Conservation Dogs Collective, it's not just like this geographic expansion, um, which makes a lot of sense, you know, at some point to also include that you don't want to just uh, out of pocket turn down someone just because they're coming to you from Arizona um, needing help. But it, I also, it seems like it, you've kind of expanded or changed some of your, your outreach and communication sorts of goals. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one of the biggest things you'll, you'll see when you visit our website and as you know, we're engaging with people on social or even in person, now that we're starting to get back out in the world, um, we're providing a lot of education for pet owners. Um, so some of this, even the basics of scent detection, you know, that we use with our own, our own finders um, in the field, but also some of the bond building, um, you know, experiences and, and resources that I personally, along with my team have kind of found, you know, along our journey of sharing our life with dogs. Um, so that's a really big key component to who we are. Like we, we always are going to honor like where we came from. Like we are, totally dog nerds and lovers first. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we're also doing the scientific work with them as well. So you'll see on, um, 
on the website, we have a whole resources page dedicated just for people. It says your dogs and it's like bond building, canine enrichment and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, and we welcome people to, and even like that, what's wrong with my dog? Like, why is my dog eating grass? You know, we get questions like that all the time too, when we're totally. you know, talking yeah. with people. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, let's give them some answers. Um, so just that ability again, just like stay really humble. Like I'm, you know, us Midwesterners were always very mm-hmm. humble about where we're from and everything. And also very proud of it too. Um, what we're doing is not magic, you know, and I want people to understand mm-hmm. that at the core of everything that the canine finder teams are doing is a, a relationship that is based on trust, understanding, and a really good education of, you know, learning theory and applied behavior mm-hmm. and all that stuff. Yeah, I love that. And I, yeah, I, I think it's one of the things that I really admire about you guys is, is just how incredibly dog centric you are. And, and that's relatively unusual in this field. A lot of the other um, big leaders in this field of conservation detection dogs have more of a background as ecologists or conservation biologists who kind of happen to use dogs for their work. And I don't mean that in a demeaning way and any, like at all, that's just uh, like, you can, you only have so many hours in your day, so many years in your life to get more and more education. And there's a lot of value in having, having that. But I, one of the things that I really admire about you guys, again, is just that level of, dog savvy um and kind of dog first mentality um because again i think sometimes particularly in some of the older old school sort of detection world um that that can be a little bit lacking where i think sometimes we in the broader detection field can look at the dog as like a sensing instrument more than anything else um so there was no question there but if you would like to respond go ahead no yeah i I totally agree and like i you know when i'm talking to researchers and scientists and potential clients and stuff i'm like listen man i am like the dog nerd over here like i have support Mm -hmm. staff that are really into the biology and ecology and all that stuff um and we have a really nice complementary team uh but yet like you said like we are dog centric first like we want that true understanding of what their capabilities Mm -hmm. are right with really sound scientific training methods that are applied to teach them the skills that they need in the field Mm -hmm. um and yet we don't consider them a tool so another thing too like when we're writing some of our reports and um, even study designs you know like a lot of traditional um, lingo that's used is like dog canine handler teams you know like and i'm like oh god can we please you know like let's try to make this a little different to really communicate what we're doing while still being reputable in the scientific community you know find your mm-hmm. keeper teams is going to sound a little you know haha <laughs> um so it's some of that education right and it's like again going back to like dogs and humans have co-evolved over tens of thousands of years together right and there's a reason for that you know, and there's obviously science behind what they're doing, but also just that that purity of why we're here together doing this work is very important to our organization. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I imagine that also informs some of your training methods, and especially given kind of your history. Um, I don't know if you're still involved with the Force Free Trainers of Wisconsin, but that also is somewhat unusual in some of these these working dog realms. Um, I know yeah. it's something that I, I share with you, and it's something I'm really passionate about. But why don't we why don't we talk a little bit about that and how it kind of relates to, you know, be- best practices as far as learning science, but also kind of 
ethics of being a dog centric dog first sort of organization. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm still involved with force free trainers of Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. You know, I give a couple hours a month as much as I can with um, overseeing mm-hmm. the membership and making sure everything's going hunky dory there. Um, I got my start in training right when Caesar Milan hit the, <laughs> the big screen. Um, mm-hmm. So my first dog that I shared my life with, she was, you know, unfortunately being uh, on the receiving end of some of those types of uh, handling mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. methodologies. And I, it never felt right to me, you know, but the whole peer pressure and I didn't know what I didn't know back then was real. Totally. And um, I got hooked up with an amazing trainer about, I don't know, a year, year and a half after I had my first dog. And she was probably one of the only positive reinforcement based trainers in the Metro Milwaukee area at that time. Um, and she showed me the, you know, the, the light, so to speak of like, here's <laughs> rooted in science, right? Here's this more gentle approach that starts with what is the dog actually motivated? You know, like what's, what's causing this behavior? What are they motivated mm-hmm. by and how can we use, you know, different types of rewards and levels of rewards to build behaviors versus trying to suppress and stop behaviors. Um, and that is a crucial turning point in my life, not only as a dog owner, but also as just a human, you know, interacting with other species. Um, and from there, you know, I, I went, I turned into a dog trainer. <laughs> I mean, that was like one of those, like, I just have a dog as a pet. And I turned into a dog trainer. Cause I was like, Oh my God, if I can, you know, really, learn more about how to apply this for my own pets, but also for future pets. And then I got hooked up, you know, just addicted to helping other people with their pets at that time too. Um, so at, you know, the heart of conservation dogs collective, I'm in until, you know, even beyond when I'm, when I'm gone here, um, this will be an organization that uses positive reinforcement methods. Um, I think Dr. Susan Friedman says it. She's like, I'm an empathic realist. So like if my dog's Mm -hmm. running out in front of a, a car, of course, I'm going to like, you know, save their life by yoinking on the leash, but I'm not using it, you know, as a training method. Um, Our dogs are not on shot collars, prong collars, any of that stuff. Um, We're truly Mm -hmm. um, setting up a safe learning environment and it just feels good. Like, you know how it is when you're in that really Mm -hmm. great positive feedback loop with your dog and you know mistakes might happen but to me that's information like okay absolutely um, yeah you just just need to tweak the training plan a little bit here Mm -hmm. right so yeah yeah no and i love and i know it's something we've talked about particularly back when this podcast was canine concert oh god canine conservation conversations i can't get it straight (laughs) you'd think at this point uh Uh, I would know, I would know what my podcasts are called, but I, but I don't, um, (laughs) but, um, back when the, so canine conversations, um, we talked a lot about this and, you know, I think Ursa and I, and, you know, most people who call themselves positive reinforcement trainers or force-free trainers, like, we all know that there are still times where, you know, my puppy was trying to eat a pile of dog poop earlier today. And I opened the screen door, stuck my head out and said, "Uh, uh-uh, cut that out, (laughs) you know? And, uh, and yeah, like if there, there's, there's a difference between, I think for most of us being really focused on, you know, humane hierarchy based uh, training procedures and least intrusive, Mm -hmm. minimally aversive training, and then also, yeah, like these times where you're not in a training situation and you just have to do whatever it is 
you know, within, within reason to keep your dog safe or keep wildlife safe or, you know, or just, you know, protect your shoes from your dog. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we can plan on being as positive reinforcement as we like in, as we want in our training situations and then, you know, strive for it when life happens. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, and that, that, that kind of circles me back as well. Um, you know, one of the things that I've noticed with, um, with the working dog field in general is that sometimes I think, I don't know. I, I think sometimes we pigeonhole ourselves into feeling the need to up the ante with more balanced training methods because we're selecting dogs that make it really hard to do things purely based on positive reinforcement. And I'm not saying that dogs need heavier hands or anything like that. But when you take a dog who's got this like totally over the top ball slash prey drive, and then you're trying to use them as a conservation detection dog, it, it puts wildlife at risk. And I know that's something that you and I have talked about as far as our breed and individual selection, when we're thinking about our dogs, um, to potentially, you know, use breed selection from, from the get go to keep wildlife safe rather than taking a dog that is more risky for wildlife and then slapping a shot collar on it and hoping that that's good enough to keep, keep our, our target species safe. Um, so why don't you talk a little bit about kind of like the selection and how, how you think about that as, as ways to stay true to, you know, our goals with, with more positive reinforcement, um, training techniques for our dogs. Yeah, absolutely. And if you disagree, uh, I'm also (laughs) open to hearing that because, you know, I know there are great people doing the same work that you and I do with that positive, with positive reinforcement with, you know, Malinois or shepherds or these other dogs that maybe are not the breeds that you and I gravitate towards. Yeah. So I, I mean, I started off as a shepherd girl and I inadvertently (laughs) trained my dog to be a crazy ball obsessed animal. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, I mean, what it was fine. Like he never injured himself or anything like that, but it really gave me a insight to understanding arousal levels and how that impacts learning right in the learner. Um, So I'm not going, I'm not going to, pigeonhole that quite yet into breed, you know, categorization or preferences, Mm -hmm. but that was my insight just into the world of like, you know, I'm seeing these high energy dogs with a lot of arousal that look really flashy, you know? And I was like, Oh God, I want one of those. And then I built one. I was like, Oh God, I don't want one of these. (laughs) Yeah. This (laughs) is a nightmare to drive. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, my, I mean, my transition into the Labrador breed, um, quite honestly, was because of my crazy ball obsessed uh, shepherd. My husband going, "We're not having another one of those for our next dog." I'm like, "All right, but I want to do scent detection, and you know, I'm <laughs> doing conservation right. work." Entered the Labrador Retriever, um, mm-hmm. which I had known a couple of them around here that were doing this work anyway, and I was like, "I love this. This is great. They're great dogs. Um, we live in the mm-hmm. city, so off hours, you know, they're very social and very stable." Um, mm-hmm. But then there's the the training aspect. So Betty White came from a totally different pedigree than Ernie did. Um, she comes from a little bit more of the, the sports car, Ferrari, <laughs> kind of flashy working dog lines, um, field lines mm-hmm. of labs. But as soon as she came home as a puppy, I'm like, I know where this can go. <laughs> I can either build mm-hmm. the craziness into her a little bit more or teach a little bit more mind mindfulness, right? While still getting that energy that I wanted and that motivation. 
Um, so mm-hmm. building when we're in the house, I built from day one, like we're doing relaxation behaviors. We're also doing fun, you know, toy based play or just you and me play. Um, but always having that very keen awareness of like, all right, what behavior gets reinforced, right. Is likely to repeat again. And I'm like, I want more calmness thinking. And I think that in the working mm-hmm. dog world, a lot of times gets overshadowed, right? A lot of people want the very high drive dogs that are going to run off of a cliff, you know, after their ball. And I'm like, you know what? I don't think they're necessarily doing the most efficient work, right? Totally. They're doing the work, but I don't know if it's the mm-hmm. most efficient. Um, yeah. So- yeah. I mean, if you think about it, it's, it's the Yerkes Dodson curve of uh, like arousal. And I, 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 I totally agree. And maybe maybe by picking on breeds, I'm I'm not being quite fair. Um, I've just been thinking so much about ethology lately and like breed groups that I think I'm starting to see everything through that lens and might need to pull myself back out of it a little bit. Um, because I think you're t- spot on about arousal as well. And I, I, my personal theory in some cases is that we like seeing that kind of insane level of arousal or drive because it lets you get away with sloppier training. Those dogs are so easy to motivate and so easy to turn on and they will power through so much adversity to get their reward, which is basic. One of my favorite definitions of drive that they, those dogs let you again, kind of get away with potentially sloppier training. So (laughs) uh, I I, I suspect that that's part of the reason that they're so popular. Yeah. And that's okay. And you know, like everybody is where they are and it's totally fine, but yeah. Oh (laughs) yeah. No, I mean, yeah and my my older border collie um is one of those dogs who does uh, he he is pretty highly aroused by toys and we've done a lot of relaxation work and i'm actually really glad i'd had him for about two years before i got into conservation dog work with him um and i had spent two years taking this this dog and trying to make him into a really lovely coffee shop around town sort of dog and then then started layering in more of that kind of arousal drive building sort of stuff again to, to make him into a working dog. And um, I don't know, I think he could have been a real, a really hot mess had I, had I not started out with that really, really solid foundation first. Um, And if I'd kind of gotten him with conservation dog work in mind, right from day one, um, I think he would be much harder to live with right now. Yeah, you'd be like me with my first dog or the second dog. <laughs> yeah. And like, you know, with, with our finder keeper teams, some of them really love the process of bringing up a puppy. Some of them don't. Right. So mm-hmm. like, there's also that dynamic, which I think adds another layer into not what sets us apart, but what you might see you know, CDCI being different from some of the other organizations out there. Like I love raising puppies mm-hmm. and kind of culturing them, knowing that they hopefully are going to be doing conservation detection work. But I'm like, I love bringing them up in the world, teaching them about just weird human ongoings, you know, um, and sprinkling in some scent detection as, you know, age appropriate exercises uh, allow. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm like always just, I want a really healthy, a mentally healthy dog, as well as, you know, obviously a physically healthy dog. And I think that too much arousal can really deter some of the, the training progress and really setting them up for success. You know, when I, my dogs get frustrated, just like every dog listening Mm -hmm. to the podcast does. Right. But I don't want them getting so over aroused and frustrated on the regular, right. That that's just the norm. 
So some yeah. of our dogs yeah. don't like Ernie just kind of trots around when he's doing field work, but he's I've clocked him. He's just as fast as Betty who moves around much faster than he does. So anyway. interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've I've really noticed that with so far Niffler, um, my puppy who's about seven months old, seems he's he's a much he's a really steady worker. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. which is surprising that the teenage boy is actually I would say the steadier worker between my my seven month old and my seven year old right now. But Barley, I mean, he's such a good dog for learning body language on because he's so he's so fast moving and his tail is changing. And like, I mean, he wears all his emotions on his sleeve while he's working. Um, And Niffler is much, much steadier. Um, And then you kind of just see him like matter of factly march on over to whatever it is he's looking for. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, and he's actually, I I ran them both on the same scent puzzle yesterday and Niffler beat Barley out by a couple minutes on the puzzle. And I think it was just because of where airflow was and I was trying to make it harder for Barley, but um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, And I think again, yeah, we get so addicted to these, these really flashy looking dogs. Um, And as particularly if you're not able to adjust your training um, plans to meet these different types of dogs, you know, if, if everything is very, very fast paced and very rigid in your training and you've learned just with these extremely high arousal, high drive, flashy dogs, and then you get something a little bit different, um, it might not work, but that might not be because the dog can't do the job. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the biggest learnings I had with my own dogs that you each were so individual from one another, but also like working with a bunch of other like Kena nose work students or even behavior cases when I was mm-hmm. doing behavior work. It's like, yeah, we know the principles of learning, right? But like you have to customize it individually for every single dog under pretty much every single condition that you're working under, right? And you know yeah, like the yeah. The more experience you get with that, the more challenging it can become, right? Because you're always going to get that oddball, like, well, my dog for the past five years has always worked ascent an elevated hide this way, but all of a sudden today he's doing this? Like, what? <laughs> what am I seeing? Uh, but yeah, having that, again, that humbleness, right, of like the dogs are honestly the best teachers that we have, and we are their mm-hmm. students. Um, obviously, when we're setting up the training situations, regardless of what it de- what it's for, scent detection or recall or whatever, it's, we're doing the best to set that stage to get the behaviors that we desire. But yeah, it's it's always very much of a, and this is what we're doing today. You know, this is what you're going to get today. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know if that makes any sense or not, but kind of it just goes back to the you know see the dog in front of you, train with alongside right the dog that's mm-hmm. in front of you. Hey guys, Kayla here from Canine Conservationists dropping into this episode to tell you about something that I'm really excited to be adding to our Patreon. We have added two additional tiers to our Patreon, the Sensational Scientist and the Canine Conservationist. So you can still join our Patreon for just three bucks a month to submit questions for us to answer at the end of each episode. You can also still um, join at 10 bucks a month to submit questions that our experts will help answer. But now for $25 a month, you can join our Patreon and actually join a monthly live training session breakdown. So that means that once a month, we are going to have a video available of me training either Barley or Niffler in conservation dog work. 
And then we will have a live meeting on Zoom with adult beverages encouraged where we can go over my training process, what I was thinking about in this session, what I'm hoping to get out of it, and what I'm going to do next time. Even better, at the highest level of our Patreon, you can join as a canine conservationist for 50 bucks a month. I know it sounds like a lot, but what you actually get to do there is you get to submit videos of you working with your own dog for me to then help analyze and break down in a kind, supportive, and helpful way. And that will also be available as bonus content for our other patrons. So while it sounds like a lot for Patreon, basically what you're paying for at just 50 bucks a month is for myself and other really excellent trainers to assess your training and work at it in a really cool teamwork sort of way. Um, or for 25 bucks a month, you get access to all of that learning. So if you are serious about trying to get into the field of conservation detection dog stuff, I cannot recommend this enough. I'm really, really excited about this program. And especially if you're listening to this right now, it's still really new. So you are going to get a ton of one-on-one -on -one interaction because there's just not going to be many people there yet. So you can sign up for that over at patreon.com slash canine conservationists. We'll also be sure to link it over on canineconservationists.org. So um, you just have to remember the one link and we will make it really easy to find. I am super excited about this. Our first offering of this is going to be in July. So at the time that you hear this, you'll still have a little bit of time to sign up before our first live video analysis. All right, back to the episode. Yeah, and, and I know you know, anytime I'm starting to feel like I don't, I don't understand what's happening with my dog in training. Um, you know, you and I first connected because I was reaching out to you quite a bit for mentoring and help with mm -hmm. trying to figure out what was happening with Barley and I and some of our searches. And, you know, I, I, the, you know, the same goes for if I'm really st like struggling with how to figure out how to get Barley to stay on track when he's searching and not go chase something. Or, you know, get Niffler to stay on track. Niffler's in like a big bird chasing phase right now. And so far we haven't had problems with that while working. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, when I'm starting to get to points where I'm frustrated with the dogs or confused about how to get the results that I, I feel like I need while staying within the positive reinforcement framework that I like to stay in, you know, that's where we just reach out to more people and we just get more help. And uh, it's amazing the creative solutions that people um, will come up with with each other. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very likely this has happened before to someone else, right? So it's that sense of community <laughs> and having the vulnerability of reaching out and saying, especially as a, a professional working handler, right, or, <laughs> or keeper, like, <laughs> I'm having issues here. You know, we don't have all the answers and we don't need right. to be by ourselves all the time because we train a lot like you do, right? Like yeah. you train a lot by yourself and mm -hmm. um, having that just openness to ask for help when well, you need it, or a second set of eyes. Like I, I have been really enjoying actually lately in the last couple of years, fewer and fewer of my friends are dog trainers. Um, I've just been making new friends that are outside of the dog training world. And it's been, it's actually been really nice. And I've always been astonished, you know, I'll be sitting around with some friends drinking or whatever, and, you know, just talking about something that's going on with my work. And someone who, you know, <laughs> has never owned a dog in their life is just like, well, couldn't you just why couldn't you just do this? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> what? where did you come up with that idea? That's so brilliant and so simple. Um, you know, so sometimes it's not even just reaching out to people who know more than you do in the field, um, but just getting diverse opinions from other people who think differently. Um, I've, 
I've got a couple friends who work in kind of like community outreach um, and like political fundraising and grassroots sort of things. So they think about behavior a lot, um, even if that's not necessarily what they know they think about. And um, I've got a couple good friends like that who just are always coming up with great ideas when I'm bouncing dog training around with them. That's awesome. I love it. Oh, I love it too. (laughs) Fresh eyes. uh, yeah. So um, unless you've got anything more to, to say there, because I know you and I could go on about this for, for the whole episode, but why don't we pivot if you're ready to talking a little bit about any upcoming projects you guys have um, or other things that you're working on that are really exciting in kind of the, the fieldwork side of things. Yeah, let's do it. What the dogs <laughs> are doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um. So this year we are doing our second fieldwork season with the bumblebee nest detection work um myself Mm -hmm. with ernie and betty white we're going to be heading out to a couple areas um alongside a university of wisconsin graduate student so that's Mm -hmm. really exciting Uh, we're also going to be working with a couple local nature preserves at this point i can't disclose information at this (laughs) point in time just because of contracts not being signed yet um Mm -hmm. and then we're also continuing the invasive New Zealand mud snail project. We're mm-hmm. kind of going back to uh, ground zero with the, the study design and really reevaluating how we're training the dogs on that, given some outcomes and, you know, data that we collected last year. So that's a great example. Like, you know what? I don't know. We kind of had some holes in this study design last year. Let's really sit down as a team, like us and the project partners reassess like what the goals are, what the objectives are, Mm -hmm. and then how we can make a more robust on my part, a more robust training plan with approximations for odor concentrations and, you know, Mm -hmm. substrates and all that stuff. Um, so that's been really exciting. Um, and then our other finder keeper teams that are located down to Indiana, they're working on a couple of different, uh, projects, one of them is a, a plant project, and then um, the other one, we're trying to get some contract work for wind farm bird and bat carcass detection as well. So, cool. yeah, it's it's going to be a busy year after last year yeah, being a little bit slower. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's exciting. You know, yeah, yeah. we get a lot of random inquiries, you know, from mm-hmm. different agencies out there as well as this word continues to get out that dogs can be used in conservation. So we've got Mm -hmm. some initial conversations going with a couple other universities as well. Yeah. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. It is. It's always kind of fun to check, check my inbox and just see like who, who wants to test the waters with conservation dogs uh, this week. And um, I, you know, as you, I'm sure it's similar for you. A lot of the conversations end up not, not quite going anywhere. It's just people like gathering information and they may come back to you in three years when they've got funding, but, um, yep. yeah, it's always, it's always fun <laughs> to see what's going on in, in people's brains about, about whether or not conservation dogs are going to be a good fit for them. Right. And that whole education too, because it is such, mm-hmm. it is still such a new thing here, right. In the United States, it's a new method and that, initial education of like yes the dog you know like we always get can the dog sniff out new zealand mud snails i'm like well if it's got an odor i'm pretty sure they can you know Um, right and just there's that constant it's not a selling process but it kind of is in a way right like totally because search and rescue has been around for so long and law enforcement work has been around for so long you know we don't we're kind of charging this big snowball up the hill yet c- trying to convince people that this is a really effective and efficient method 
um, that they should be considering. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and yeah, then thinking through, you know, like what, what other things have you tried? Why are you coming to dogs at this point? Cause I know I've exactly. really noticed with a lot of my inquiries that it's people who are coming to me kind of at the end of their rope, not sure if this is going to work or not sure if things are findable. And, you know, then we can, we have to spend a lot of time looking at, you know, why did the other things not work? And, you know, right. what, why do we think that dogs might work for this? Um, because, right. you know, I, like one of the things that I personally find really fascinating are the times where dogs might not actually be the right tool or the, or the solution. Um, and, uh, well, we're, we're gonna, we're gonna do a whole episode on that at some point where uh, I might just dig into a lot of it. And I mean, one of the fascinating things too is, you know, I was just reading a paper that was published, um, about using dogs to find bumblebee nests. And there are, there's one paper that was quite successful using dogs for bumblebee nests. Another paper actually with some of, um, some of the folks over at working dogs for conservation where they did not have much success, uh, doing bumblebee nests last year. And then, you know, you guys are clearly doing bumblebee nest. And I assume because you're doing it for a second year, that means you're having some amount of success. So, you know, just the intricacies of whether it's the specific species or the specific substrate or the specific training plan. Um, and the no. study design too, right? A lot of mm-hmm. it comes down to like, what are you actually studying? And if, you know, putting dogs up against human only survey methods, like really trying to give the dogs a little bit of a, I'll say a break, right? Like give them some credit, you know, cause some of the studies out there right now for conservation works, like, but there's a bunch of, <laughs> it's like the humans weren't successful either, you know? Totally. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, I know. Yeah. I know sometimes when I was talking to people about the black-footed ferret work that I've done, where I think with the dogs searching 300 meter spaced transects, the dogs were about 45% successful finding black-footed ferrets. And then if you, if you zoomed in to closer to hundred meter transects, the dogs were somewhere up in the nineties and I'd be talking to people and they'd be like 45%, that's pretty bad. And they'd be like, yeah, but that's a single day of searching and human searchers and spotlighters would get to about 45% over three nights of searching. Um, and that's also getting volunteer crews to go out in the middle of the night to spotlight. Um, right. So, you know, and like those metrics are going to vary from, from project to project as far as what's, what's good enough. You know, I, like it's something else that we run into in science all the time where, uh, oh gosh, I, it's been a long time since my undergrad statistics class, but you know, like in ecology, yeah having um these confidence intervals um or r values or whatever that are excellent in ecology would be absolutely horrifying were you to see them in medicine um you know (laughs) so it just it varies quite a bit you know it's okay to have conservation dogs who maybe miss a couple animals when you're just doing a population study for uh for a, a species and you just kind of need to find some samples but if a dog misses um a single invasive that could potentially propagate 10,000 seeds. That's a really big deal. And it's an even bigger deal if your dog misses a cancer screening. Uh, right. Exactly. <laughs> you know, stakes, stakes matter. Um, yeah. Okay. So we are going to start wrapping up here. Do you have anything else that you wanted to add before we start telling people where they can find you and learn more about you? Mm, you know, no, I think, you know, the, all the dogs say hi. <laughs> That's about it. You know, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And people, um, you know, definitely should go ahead and follow you guys on social media. You've got such, such great, um, get great content, whether it's, you know, getting to know all your, your finders and their keepers and asking them questions, which I've been really enjoying over on Instagram, um, and all sorts of great educational stuff. So where can people find you? And how can they support you if they're interested in, um, 
and helping out the, with the work that you're doing or getting involved. Yes. Um, best place to go is probably our website, conservationdogscollective.org. Um, we've got all the good stuff there, links to social or there were on most of the norms, you know, Facebook, Instagram, we got a YouTube channel, mm -hmm. we have Pinterest boards as well that are really fun. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, I'm going to have to check you guys out. <laughs> lots of fun going on on Pinterest. Um, and, you know, we're a nonprofit organization, so we mm -hmm. appreciate anybody's ability to support the dogs. All 100% of all gifts go right to the working dogs and um, mm -hmm. all the fun sniffing that they get to do. Um, and, yeah, you know, reach out with any questions. We love talking to people, engaging with new friends, um, old friends, and everything in between. Yeah. And, and I can say from firsthand experience that you guys have just been, you've been so generous with your time. And I mean, I'm still really grateful for the work that you, you and I did together last year with, with Barley and kind of dialing in some of my observational skills with him. So I can, I can firsthand say that uh, it's worth it to reach out to you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. We really do. Yeah. I mean, we're here for each other and there's nothing, you know, that we really need to be so, you know, resource guardy about with our work. <laughs> the more people that can get in to this work, mm -hmm. whether it's volunteering just with cheerleading or, you know, they actually do the work with their beloved companions, you know, the more nature is going to benefit. Absolutely. And, you know, and with that, you know, like one of the things I think about a lot is, you know, it's it seems similar to gatekeeping and sheltering or breeding when you're, when you're, uh, being really, really stingy with getting, letting someone purchase or adopt a dog, if people really want to get a dog, they will then just go to Craigslist or Kijiji or whatever, and they will get themselves a dog. And I think similarly in this field, when, when us conservation detection dog people um, are unwilling to help or unable to help, because, you know, we are really busy and we do get a lot of inquiries. Um, one of the things that could happen is someone who really wants to get into this field and was really trying to figure out how to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and get in here uh, could flounder around and, um, you know, that's obviously not fair to them or their dogs. Um, and there's, I don't know, I'm just, I'm really passionate about getting, getting people the help and assistance that they need as they're trying to get into this field. Because one of the realities as well is this is such a new and uh, fragile field in some ways that um, we don't want a lot of people who don't know what they're doing to get involved and get a bunch of fundraising money and then do a bad job. Um, so it behooves all of us in this field to help people, help people who are motivated to get involved, um, get in and do it right and, and help them, uh, expand this amazing field, which is, you know, why we're doing this podcast. That's right. <laughs> I could not agree more with what you just yeah. said. Yep. Yeah. Well, awesome. Thank you so much, Laura. We will link to everything you've mentioned in the show notes. So people can find those over at canineconservationists.org. It's letter K number nine. So, um, it's funny because I don't actually really like the term canine as far as my dog partners, but it does sound flashy and people know what I mean when I say it. So there we are. Um, and to all of our listeners, thank you guys again so much for listening. We hope that you learned a lot and you're feeling inspired to get outside and be a canine conservationist in whatever way suits your passions and skill sets. You can find those show notes and extra info again over at canineconservationist.org. You can also support the canine conservationists field vehicle repairs over at our GoFundMe page, which is also linked in our show notes. We could desperately use any financial help that you want to throw our way, maybe split it between us and uh, Conservation Dogs Collective. Um, we appreciate it so much. And until next time.